Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. You touched a little bit um, on George Floyd. What was your reaction when you, you saw the video, if you did see the video? And what was that conversation like with your with your team? Yeah, it was, um, I haven't watched the whole thing, you know, but yeah. but when those things happen, it's it's just never, that circumstance is never one you want your community. It's something that where your, your officers, somebody that works for you could have done something different that maybe impacts the results here in a better way. And so I... You know, and from that standpoint, yeah, I, I I got a couple minutes in the video. I'm like, yeah, I think I think I, I think got I enough. Got I got the idea of what happened, yeah. right? And so, you know, and, and the other thing is, you know, I am at that point, I am just like everybody else in the community. I don't have all the facts. I don't know how they got there. I like to pass judgment on those in terms of what could we do to have done something different. Different, yeah. Would it have changed the outcome? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know, and so I think um, some of it was, you know, a chance to for us to just discuss with staff, you know, the responsibility of, of our actions out there every day. It's, mm-hmm. uh, we have a supervisor on duty every day, uh, uh who's a member of management, you know, whose responsibility is to go intervene in some of those different kinds of situations for us locally. And so it was just a chance to have that conversation again. Sometimes officers get pulled into stuff. They get pulled into it emotionally and they just can't find the balance that they normally have. It, it, it's just gone. I mean, I've been there. I, I've been a cop for 25 years. It, it happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. And despite your best effort not to do that, a lot of the times when that happens for us is like in vehicle pursuits and some of those kinds of things where, where having a, a neutral objective set of eyes that's not right there involved in the scene mm-hmm. helps us to make better decisions. And so that's, that's really the responsibility for our first line supervisors is to go do that kind of stuff. And so it's to get out there and, and figure out what's going on and, and try to impact it so it, it ends better than it yeah. could have otherwise. I, I always hear people say, oh, this cannot happen here. How do you prevent something like that? I think 100% prevention is probably impossible. a dream. Yeah, yeah it's I just, impossible. You know, but I think the things that you can do that, that, that I think we know work well is you hire good people. I mean, I think that's that's the first start. you got to have people that, that care about human, want to be part of the community, uh, who I think are out there every day answering questions about what the police do in their community. And so I think, and I think a lot of our people do that. You know, we have a, yeah. I would say about uh, over 60% of our department has some tie to the area on duty or off duty. But if they're staying in line at the grocery store or at Target or wherever, and they see somebody they know who's going to say, Hey, what about that thing that happened yesterday? You know, and it's, it's a chance for us to explain that right then and there, you know? And so I think those are great conversations because when we can knock down those questions as they come up, I think, it builds a lot of trust in our community because we can explain it right now and our community gets an answer from somebody that they know and they respect. And I think that, that that's always a good thing. But I think the, the training piece of that is really important. We've done some things in the last two or three years that I think are good. I We've got some things on the radar that we've been planning for before all of this that I yeah. got held up because of COVID mm-hmm. that I think are going to be really good. That And I think that training piece mm-hmm. is the best thing we can do to expose our officers to different ideas, to give them the skill set to de-escalate, to problem solve, to troubleshoot, all those things in the field as they yeah. come up. And then, you know, always with the the final responsibility then being really supervision and accountability. Uh, because we, 
use of force incidents all automatically get a review in our department through a, an administrative investigation management system that we have. And so when we have a trigger incident, it goes in and that, that review starts with the, the supervisor and then comes up through my office when it's done. And I, by the time it gets to me, I'm usually just signing off on it because all the work has been done. Uh, but it documents what happens and what we did. And the use of force was appropriate and reasonable and just what the circumstances were. And so, and the idea is to make sure that we've got some accountability to that. That system helps us track who the involved officers are, you know, who the involved parties are. So if there's any kinds of early intervention or warning or trends that are starting to come out of that, it, it starts to, the software can figure that out and, and yeah. let us know. Okay. Uh, and so those are, those are some of the other ways that we try to try to prevent that. How do we flush out the bad cops? I think, uh, you know, we incentivize telling the truth and, and you know, having integrity and, and speaking up. You know, I think that's one thing that's come out of some of this discussion, you know, is, is the, the duty to intervene. And I, so I think that that part's really important. I, I have to be honest with you, Eric. You know, I've, I've been a cop here in Iowa for 26 years now, and, and I've had one time in my career where there was a, a need for intervention that I, and we did. And yeah. it was just, it's just not something that we see frequently. Yeah. I mean, I think people would be really stunned to know the real numbers in most agencies. And they're, they're very, 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 very small. Okay. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really, there's a study that the, the Dolan, just to put some numbers to this, the Dolan consulting, had, but they did a study a couple years ago and they estimated that the police in the United States have 380 million contacts with the public every year. 380 million. That's just a to, lot. Just to put those numbers into, yeah, into some. And so in those encounters, there's about 46,000 assaults on officers, and then about 15,000 of those result in some injury to the officer. Only 1,000 times a year does wow. a civilian die at the hands of the police out of 380 million contacts. Wow. And, and I think, just to give you the loose numbers, 270 of those in the last year they counted were African-American. I don't know the total number of people of color, but that says that... Um, dealing with a police officer in our country is still safer than having surgery <laughs> or getting struck by lightning or, you know, all those other things. And so it's, I, I think, you know, all of that to say that that intervention piece, while important, is happening. Uh, and I think most people are doing a pretty good job of that. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you, you brought that up. Why do you think then you guys are getting more bad rap versus any other field? I think right now, I think it just has a lot to do with our. Uh, where we are in our country, you know, we are uh, probably the least unified as we've maybe ever been in our country, which is really interesting. I think, you know, we're, we're really at that instant gratification piece of where we are with technology and just with how we live lives in America. Right. I mean, we, we got first world problems, right? Like, Hey, my dinner wasn't ready on time and we are the most visible arm of government. Um, you know, we, we put our uniforms on every day and, head out in our communities and drive our marked cars. And, and we're a, a target for the media just because we're visible. I think the media drives that narrative. And it's who can get the first click and who can get the lead story because the revenue and the sales and the and the the money that the media makes now off the clicks for those stories yeah. is what drives the narrative, oh, yeah. whether it's right or wrong. Oh, and yeah. So that's that's why I think we're, we're in the crosshairs. What do you think is the disconnect between us civilian? And a police officer. I don't know. I, I think that the biggest thing sometimes is people see us as just not human. I think, and I think that's the that's probably the the farthest from the truth. Yeah. I think um, you know some of our people take stuff home that's that's not easy to take home. You know, they they encounter people on their worst day. 
under the worst circumstances. And it's, it's not very often you get the call back later that says, thank you. That just doesn't happen a lot. I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else yeah. does. And so I, I think that's one thing we try to do through our social media, you know, tell that story of we're human too. And, mm-hmm. and here's us on a good day. And these are, these can be rough days for us too. And so we try to illustrate that sometimes with the pictures, with some of the appreciation things that come into the department when people show up and, you know, drop off, you know, cookies or, you know, things that we can maybe share with kids at car accident scenes. Somebody will bring mm. in, sometimes we'll, we'll get a donation of uh, stuffed animals that we'll, we'll bag up and put in each squad car. And then, you know, when we end up at that crash scene where mom or dad or somebody gets hurt and has to get one in an ambulance, we can at least hand a kid a stuffed animal and give them some, something to smile about for a second and provide a bit of distraction. Tell me, what do you think? Or what do you feel when you hear the word, uh, defund police or abolish police? The first time you heard it, what was going on through your mind and what's going on through your mind today when you still hear those words? Um, I wonder is the word I would, I would say I, people just don't have an idea what our officers do every day, particularly locally. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're not a big city. Uh, we're big for our region. And so, you know, we have kind of a leadership role in our, our region as being the kind of big department for eight or nine counties here. You know, I just don't think that our community, you know, for people that go to bed at nine o'clock at night, maybe they don't have any idea, you know, and sometimes honestly, that's more days and afternoons in terms of some of the mental health things that our officers deal with every day. Some of the people in crisis that we encounter, I just, that our community has a low understanding. Most people don't have any idea. How do you educate the community? Yeah, I've pondered kind of doing a, a tweet along with our officers. One day I'm going to go ride with an officer and, you know, what we're going to try to share pictures from the field. You know, obviously we're a, a pretty small community and so it would be hard to keep people from being identifiable. But I think if our community understood exactly the challenges that our, our officers deal with every day, it would really change their perspective and understand that defunding is really the wrong approach. I, I, I think, you know, we're where we are because things have been defunded. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental health, substance yeah. use, and those things, they have, they got to find a home. And, you know, to, to law enforcement's credit, and I'm not just talking about me, city PD here, I'm talking about nationally. I think the police, for the most part, get it right most of the time. I mean, we, we walk into situations all the time that we don't, we don't maybe know how to deal with them, but we get people through it. And we leave them as good or a little bit better than we found them and try to help them solve the problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's, that's really our, our goal. Yeah. There's one argument on defunding the police uh, is that the mental health part. Correct. Because every time when there's issue with somebody with mental health, police get called. Right. But sometimes police get called who are not trained on that area. Correct. And the idea is... Let's take those funds away from police and take the task away from police and put that somewhere else. It's just almost as the same thing when there's a fire somewhere. The fire department goes first and then the police goes there to supervise, make sure nothing get out of hand. Sure. What is your thought about that? That police should not be dealing with the mental health calls. They should be there as the backup just in case something go crazy. Mm-hmm. And let somebody who trained to do that. Yeah, so we're we're a little bit ahead of the curve on this. We have oh, a good. social worker that sits in our 
police department. Oh, really? Um, that's funded by County Social Services. Good yep. deal. It's a position called the Justice Coordinator. Okay. And that position has been filled since January of 2018. And so we have a mechanism on every call that we're on for the officers to be able to check a box in our software system. And then the next morning at 8 o'clock the, for the previous day's calls for service for the past 24 hours, that report of those encounters goes directly to Jamie Schriever, our justice coordinator. And so Jamie works for County Social Services, and because she's a social worker, sits behind the HIPAA wall. And it's a, it's a record system for County Social Services separate from the police department. But it's a chance for her to try to build the the resource and the support net around frequent flyer mental health cases for the police department. And so the idea is is that we're trying to avoid criminalizing mental health. We're not arresting them if we can avoid it for petty offenses that are going to put them in jail. Yeah, uh, we're not using force on them. Um, all the things that are are not going to help them with the mental health issue. And so Jamie then turns around and works to try to reach out to their doctor or their provider or their family. Or sometimes if they're in jail, she'll go talk to them there about where are you going when you get out and how are we going to kind of get you back on track. And so sometimes it's just a matter of a, a med check or getting somebody back on their medication or they're due for their injection therapy and they, they miss their appointment. Or it's getting family just back involved to make sure that you know, they have transportation or, you know, whatever the need is that caused the crisis the day before for the police department to encounter them. And it's to try to get them back into those, those supports. Mm. So I like the idea of having uh, embedded social workers, but some days we need them and some days we don't, (laughs) you know, I I mean, it's, it's hard for us to predict the load. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for our part um, on the training side, we've um, all of our officers have mental health first aid training Uh, over the course of the next couple of years. They're all going to get um, a, a training program called ICAT through the Police Executive Research Forum. It's called Integrating Communication and Tactics. It's a de-escalation strategy that's starting to show some real promise. We'll be trained up on that. And we're also going to implement um, our crisis intervention training. Um, and we hope to get about 65% of the department or so trained in CIT when we're done. I think with the support net that we have with county social services through the justice coordinator position and the ongoing training you know, I feel like we're doing really good. We have um, an evaluator as part of our grant that we're currently on. We're working on a three-year mental health grant with the feds uh, that we applied for and got about half a million dollars in funding. We've had several quarters where we haven't used force on at all on anybody with a mental health. With everything that's been going on in the country, do you and your officer feel pressure to treat black suspect or black people that get pulled over or anything like that different from whites? Um, I think there are, there are certainly situational opportunities where that's, that comes up. I think depending on, on who the players are. um, I think there's, I think we assume sometimes we're, we're just playing under those rules um, just because of the narrative now, you know, but I think at the same time too, our, our officers do a good job of, of fact finding. And, you know, I think, um, the terms I'd like to talk about here are, are discrimination and disparity, right? You know, discrimination is out by itself. The description is is wrong, illegal, mm-hmm. you know, immoral. And disparity, I think, is is the approach that we're looking for. Like, there can be a fact pattern around a person of color that we encounter at work that makes the circumstances a in situation a difference from the circumstances situation B where we're going to have completely different resolutions to those situations. But there's some of that disparity that 
because of the fact pattern is appropriate and reasonable. And so I think, you know, I, I think for people to, to blanket say, hey, the police are always going to do this in this situation. That's great until you find the exception, right? I mean, yeah. it's like every other rule you make for your yep. kids or those kinds of things. Like they're going to find the, the out. And so I think, you know, for us, it's, it's right and good policy. And then, um, you know, when we get out of policy, we document it. We see if there's policy development or policy failure, and, and we address those things as well if we need to. But I think for the most part, our, our officers dive in as much as people will let us uh, in terms of sharing information with us, uh, you know, trying to be trying to get the best information we can to make the best decision at the time. And I think for the most part, people are understand that and work with us as, as much as we would expect that they would. Okay. Trust and the relationship between a black man and a police officer in America has been crazy. Let's, right. Let's put it that way. Sure. Blacks sometimes view police as the enemy. Right. And they're just here to take their freedom away. And there's some police officers in the country will view blacks as menace to society. How do we mend that relationship? I think um, first for us, getting back out in the community, you know, obviously COVID hasn't helped us with this. And so it's, we tend to be a pretty active department in terms of community outreach. And, you know, we're, we're still in uncharted waters because of COVID. But, uh, you know, we were, National Night Out is a big deal for us. And we didn't do that last year, but we're, we're tentatively slated to do that this year, we hope. You know, if, if vaccination processes and things like that go well. But I think that's really where it starts. And I think, you know, for us, it's just being aware of the issue and then working hard, like we talked earlier, to not be in circumstances where we're always at odds with people where we can have those conversations. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we certainly have pockets of the community where we can do that. We have pockets of the community where we have built those trusted relationships uh, with different people in different families and, and people that have been in Mason City for a lot of years. And so I, I really am um, proud of the relationships that our department has built in some of those because I I know we've had officers who have called uh, people that they know who have helped us de-escalate brewing situations between known parties. You know, it's it's been sometimes the matriarch of that family calling in a generation or two younger and saying, hey, knock it off. Like, like enough is enough. And that has helped us avoid some escalation of those confrontations on the street at different times. And so I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. Can we always do better? I think so. Yeah. I mean, so, we could be more intentional about it. And I think one thing that's really missing in Mason city is our, there's not a, um, an organized grassroots effort to kind of have those discussions and to, to learn about those differences and to maybe have people be willing to be challenged and then do their own personal growth to to learn more, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we've tried to do that at the police department. We uh, we brought Dr. Daniel Spikes in when he was at Iowa State. He was since at the University of South Carolina and is now back uh, in education in Texas. Uh, but we brought him in, I think, three years ago, and we did a, a, a training a couple of days, one on uh, cultural competency and the other on systems of oppression, mm-hmm. just to help provide some perspective for our staff in terms of the government construct and the construct of education and and banking and finance and the media and how those are, you know, many of those systems are set up against people of color and to the advantage of, of whites. Yeah. And just to help, help educate our staff about that. And there were some good, there were some hard conversations in those training sessions. And Dr. Spikes was, was super. And I um, think we need those conversations. I do too. Yeah. And I think, you know, being willing to not necessarily get resolution yeah. is okay, mm-hmm. but let's be talking let's about be ta- it. Yeah. Let's figure out how to understand the differences and then build, yeah. uh, you know, some commonality as we're having the conversation. Oh, yeah. And then Absolutely. we're better when we're done. Absolutely. What do you think the future of policing next, I don't know, 50 years? 
I hopefully it's still humans doing it. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've seen RoboCop and you know, you see but that's you know, interesting. Technology is technology is crazy. But I think, you know, that's the that's the thing. Like you I know, never, as you th- talk I never about, thought about that. Yeah, as you think about civil liberties and the ways that we're using technology, I you know like like when I when cell phones started, right? We used to search cell phones all the time. You need a warrant to search cell phone. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the Supreme Court finally said at some point, no, that's uh that's an extension, you know, of your home, of, you, of, yeah. of the privacy that you have in your in your things. And now you need a search warrant to search a phone. You know, you need a search warrant now to put a GPS on a car. You need a, you know, a search warrant to get or a non-testimonial to get DNA from somebody. You know, as you think about all the technology, just just in my career, it's yeah. it's mind-blowing. Things that we can do now that we couldn't the day I started yeah, as a cop. You think yeah. technology is going to make policing better? I hope so. I mean, I, you know, I watch this debate nationally about facial recognition. You know, there are, there are cities, entire cities, like city councils and states that are coming out against it. And I'm like, well, if you got my mug, I'm my driver's license and I go out and I do something wrong in my community. I want you to hold me accountable. Like I, I assume as I live my life every day on duty or off duty, as I walk into a coffee shop or I stop at a gas station, I'm being recorded. I really think the, the big change in the future is going to be the, the management of the technology and then also how technology continues to improve our or in, impact our privacy. The other challenge for us too in policing is figuring out the courts. We have a really difficult time right now getting long sentences in state court for repeat offenders. And so we started to take people federal mm-hmm. uh, as much as we can because there's some truth in sentencing, sentencing with the feds. You're going to do yeah. 85% of your time. Mm-hmm. And the people that we take there are repeat frequent violators that are generally a threat to public safety. And so we really want to make good use of that. And so I think figuring out some of that reform Mm -hmm. or how to make some of those things work. So we're not playing the, the arrest jail release carousel over and over and over again. That revolving door. Yeah. We just, we got to get off that. Okay. And I'll try to stay out of trouble. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You talk about how divided the country is. Yeah. What do you think is the solution there? How do we unify the country? I don't know. I have a I have a friend of mine that's um, heavily involved in politics. He he has been since the day that I met him, and uh, we had a long conversation about this. Mm-hmm. And the lack of unity in our country is concerning to both of us. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he talked about you know it used to be it didn't matter what party you were, people were looking for solution. You know, the person that did the right thing, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. It was more about the the concept and the idea that was good for the most people instead of maybe what's good for me yeah. or how can I just make you look bad mm-hmm. that makes me appear yeah. better. Yeah. You know, like, like we're, we're so much into this, the slander and, and character playing game playing mm-hmm. with all of that. And I, I, I think we got to get out of that. It's not good for us. I no. mean, it's, it's, it's not good for us as people. I don't think it's good for our country. I don't think it's good for our economy. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it splits us up across really weird lines. And so I really think trying to, that unity piece is to me kind of where we start. And I don't, I don't care which party it is. I don't, I'm more about let's figure out how to do it together than who gets credit for it. That's the idea. Yeah. I feel like everybody I talk to, they have the same feeling. Mm. There's huge divide, but how do we bridge that divide? Right. Hopefully we'll come up with some. I hope so. I, I hope the more, the more we talk, the better it's going to get. Yep. Yep. This is the last question I, I'll put on you. I don't want you to think about too deeply. I want okay. you to do it quickly. Okay. Right? Got it. You walk outside. You drop dead before you get in the car. 
What would be your biggest regret? Oh, man. Um, I told you not to think, Chief. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have many. I don't have any professional ones. I'd do it all over again the way I did it. Personal? Besides not being able to see your grandkids? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, I, I think not seeing how my kids turn out mm. would be... Because we, we've had that conversation at home. You know, my son's 17. He'll be a senior next year. And we talk about leaving home. I'm like, you know, I said, I'm, I'm really excited about that. He's like, oh, you want me out of the house? I'm like, no. Like, I want to see if we got it right. And I, I hope you get it right. I hope we get a few of those panic calls from you like, hey, mom and dad, how do, how do I do this? Or, or what do I do now? Uh, yeah. You know, but but I for the moment, I want you to think on your feet. I, I want to see how we did as parents. Mm-hmm. If we got it right, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's probably, that would probably be my biggest regret. Okay. Just not getting to see that. Yeah. To let you know, my daughter's going to be 17 this year too okay and i told her she need to move out as soon as possible and i think it's good for them yeah i think it's good for my own soul right because i want to be able to watch what and i told her i'm turning 40 this year chances that i'm gonna leave another 40 only god knows right 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 so i want to be able to see her that she can handle life on her own yep chief thank you for your time man. absolutely no thanks for the invite that was chief jeff brinkley Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast.